If you have your Bibles open to Acts chapter 11, I have a question. How many watched when I sat down to see if my feet touched the ground? Yeah, I knew there would be some. I knew there, there's always going to be some. In Acts chapter 11, we read about the establishment of the world's first Gentile church. There was a day where there was one church, one church like ours, and it was in the city of Jerusalem. Most of the people in that church were of a Jewish background. There were thousands of members of that church. They were a very faithful church. The Bible says the Lord added daily to that church such as should be saved. But then a persecution came along, and sometimes we think persecution is all a bad thing, but in this case, God had a reason for allowing it. Because, see, God didn't just want the church in one place. He wanted everybody to hear the gospel. Nobody beyond the scope of that message. And so with that persecution, the believers in that church in Jerusalem were scattered everywhere. Acts 8 says that as they went out, they went out preaching the word of God. Nothing could stop these believers from sharing their faith. Um, again, we read with Brother Adam in verse 19... Most of the places they went, uh, they would just preach to the Jewish people. They'd end up in a synagogue. And there they would preach the message about Jesus dying on the cross, being buried and raised again three days later, and that gospel message. But there were a group of people that went to Antioch, a city on the coast north of the city of Jerusalem. And the Bible says there they spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. I don't know about you, but I'm glad the gospel isn't just for the Jewish people. I'm glad the gospel was for the Gentile as well. Otherwise, none of us would get to be saved. Amen? So this church has started, and it's, it's a new thing. Because the Jewish believers, they had this idea that the gospel was just for the Jewish people. And so now they're hearing about this church and it's, it's, it's Greek people and they've gotten saved and the apostles wanted to make sure this was of the Lord, it was right. So they sent somebody up from Jerusalem to check it out and the man they sent was a man by the name of Barnabas in verse number 22. Now Barnabas was not a pastor. Barnabas was not an apostle. Barnabas was a church member. He was, he was uh, uh, an average person in the church. Not that there's anything less of, of that than a pastor and apostle, but I point that out because sometimes when we read about certain people in the Bible, well, yeah, boy, he was an apostle, or he was a prophet, or he was a king. Barnabas was one of us. Barnabas would have come and sat in a service like this, and he would have sung the same songs and served wherever he could find a place to serve. One day he would become a missionary. But at this point in time, Barnabas is just a church member. And the people of Jerusalem said, go up there to Antioch, check it out, make sure things are right. The Bible says, verse 23, who when he came and had seen the grace of God, he saw what God was doing. He saw the joy on these people's faces. He saw their lives changing and their, their testimonies of how they got saved. The Bible says he was glad and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart, they would cleave unto the Lord. He encouraged them, keep going. You, you've started out well, and God's got a plan for your life, and so cleave unto the Lord. And notice what the Bible says about Barnabas in verse 24. For he, 
was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, much people was added unto the Lord. Look at that little phrase again, for he, Barnabas, was a good man. He was a good man. The book of Psalms and Proverbs has a lot to say about a person described as a good man. Psalm 37, 23 says, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delighteth in his way. A good man is somebody who lets God tell them how to live, lets God tell them what to be, how to talk, how to treat people. They're ordered by the Lord. Psalm 112, verse five says, a good man showeth favor and lendeth. He will guide his affairs with discretion. He's kind to other people. The idea of showing favor, also that word favor means grace. He gives, he gives other people a lot of grace. He realizes we're all a work in progress and, and God's, God's working in all of us and so he's willing to give grace. A good man will do that. Proverbs 12, 2 says a good man obtaineth favor of the Lord. He, he pleases the Lord. God is, God is uh, happy. If you will, God is proud of such a person. Proverbs 13, 22 says, A good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children. A good man is somebody that leaves a legacy behind him that carries on down through the generations. Proverbs 14, 14 says, The backslider in heart shall be filled with his own ways, and a good man shall be satisfied from himself. At the end of the day, the good man is the one that has a sense of peace, has a sense of joy, has a sense of well-being, because that is part of the blessing of the Lord that comes on someone called a good man. Barnabas was such a man. God's word proclaimed him and said, for he was a good man. Now, it's interesting to me that in all of the Bible, with all of the people that are described and detailed for us, mentioned in the Bible, there are only two men that are called a good man. Barnabas was one. The other was a man named Joseph from the city of Arimathea. He was the man that when Jesus died on the cross, went into Pontius Pilate and begged the body of Jesus and buried that body in his own tomb, a, a, a brand new tomb. And the Bible says of Joseph that he was a good man. When you think of how many hundreds of people, names that are familiar to us, that are found in the Bible, only two of them got this title, he was a good man doesn't mean that Abraham wasn't a good man. Uh, Job was described as a just man, a perfect man, one that feared God and to shoot evil. I'm going to assume that also means he was a good man, but the words weren't actually given to him in that sense. But Barnabas was a good man. So what made him that? Why did God look down from heaven and say, that right there, that is a good man? As we look through the book of Acts, we see some characteristics of Barnabas I'd like to draw your attention to for a couple of moments this morning. Turn to Acts chapter 4. This is where we first meet him, Acts chapter 4. The church of Jerusalem now has over 7,000 members. It started on the day of Pentecost with 3,000 people being added to the original church family. 
And many of those people were from out of town. They traveled from all over the Roman world to Jerusalem for the Feast of, the, of Pentecost. There they heard the gospel and got saved, and there they stayed. They didn't go back home because it was the only church there was yet. And they were, they were the Bible says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. But I don't know if you've ever gone on vacation. You know, it, it's very easy to run out of money if you're not careful. Over the years as a youth pastor, I would take teenagers on trips to youth conferences or camps and things like that. We would always tell them, look, you gotta, you're going to have to have this much money. We're going to have so many meals. We're going to stop here and there. So make sure you spend your money wisely. There was always one that spent the entire wad on day one. Right, And then they were, you know, they're begging food off of everybody else for the rest of the week. Uh, these people wasn't necessarily they were like that. They just didn't plan to stay there for an extended period of time. But this was a work of God. They didn't want to go home. Well, people need a place to stay. They need food to eat and so forth. So the church began taking it upon themselves to, if you will, take up offerings to, to help all of these folks to make sure everybody was cared for. This is where we meet this guy, Barnabas. Look at verse 34. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and bought, brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. Uh, this was just a generous, kind church. Everybody did this. Uh, if somebody had a little bit, they'd bring part of it and make sure everybody else was fed and so forth. One of those, verse 36, and Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. One of the guys that got saved in that church was named Joseph. Joseph, like so many people, there was not literally from Jerusalem. He lived on the island of Cyprus. If you understand your ancient history, Cyprus was high-priced land even 2,000 years ago. Some of the Roman emperors had estates on the island of Cyprus. So anybody else that had land, the price and value of their land went very, very high. Well, this guy, Joseph, had land on the island of Cyprus. He saw the needs within the church, so he just somehow, he, he, he got somebody to go up there and he sold the land. We're going to assume he probably made a, a good profit off that. And he just brought the money in and gave it to the apostles and said, here, feed whoever's hungry. Make sure everybody has a place to stay. Just use it for however the Lord wants it to be used. And he didn't think twice of it. It would have been a big gift. It would have been a lot of cash uh, to, to present. And he didn't think anything about it. As a result of his kindness and his generosity, he got a nickname. The apostles, instead of calling him Joseph, started calling him Barnabas. And the name Barnabas means the son of consolation or the son of the comforter. If you remember back in John chapter 14 and John chapter 16, the Holy Spirit is called the comforter, one of his titles. 
This man Barnabas was so filled with the Holy Spirit, his, his very life brought comfort and consolation and encouragement to other people. What made him a good man? Barnabas sacrificed to help other people. He sacrificed to help other people. Selfishness is a part of human nature. One of the first words a child ever learns to say is no. One of the next words they learn to say is mine. That's mine. And that is sort of born in us. Uh, when we get saved, God wants to remove that sense of selfishness from us and cause us to live for other people. Isn't that what Jesus did? Isn't that what he came for? It was God loving others, God loving us. Well, Barnabas had that nature, and he didn't think twice about it. He did not do it for show. Later on, we meet Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, who they gave for show. They needed an attaboy for everything that they did, and they lied about it, and God showed his displeasure with that selfish carnal spirit that both of them died in the middle of church three hours apart on the same day. Barnabas wasn't like that. He didn't bring his money before the church, if you will, to make a show of it. That's what Ananias and Sapphira did. He brought it privately to the, privately to the apostles and said, here, you just do whatever you want with it. And they're the ones that gave him a nickname, the son of consolation, a blessing to other people. I wonder if our fellow church members were to give us a nickname today. I wonder what they'd call us. Grumpy? Whiny? Grouchy? Complainy? Happy? Sleepy? Dopey? Doc? Just go down through the rest of the dwarves. You, you understand we all have a reputation. The book of Proverbs says even a child is known by his doing, whether his work be pure and whether it be right. We, we all have such a reputation. Barnabas had a reputation in that church that the apostles surnamed and they gave him the nickname Barnabas. Now that's what he's always known by from that time on in the book of Acts. We never hear him one more time called Joseph, his given name. It was the nickname because that so much described him. And he was a good man. He was a man that sacrificed for others. Someone has said that the word joy can be turned into uh, um, an, an acronym. Is that what you call it? An acronym. The letter J stands for Jesus first. O is other second and yourself last, J-O-Y. Does that describe us? Jesus first, other second, ourselves last. Most people, and sadly even a lot of Christians have it backwards. You're living not in joy but in yaj. Yourself first. Others may be second if they're even in the picture and Jesus dead last. Barnabas wasn't that kind of a person. Not even a little bit. And he was such an incredible blessing to an entire church of people that they called him the son of consolation. And God looked down and it was God who said, that is a good man. There's a second thing that I want you to notice about Barnabas. Go to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Not only did he sacrifice to be a blessing to other people, Barnabas saw potential 
in people where no one else did. In Acts 9, we read about a man who got saved. His name was Saul of Tarsus. Everybody in the church knew him. They were terrified of him. The Bible starts out chapter 9 and verse 1, and Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. Now, I've met people that don't like Christians. I've met people that have torn up a gospel tract when I've tried to give it to them. I've been out soul winning and had people slam the door at me. I've had people curse at me. But I've really, I, I can honestly, I've never had anybody try to kill me or I've never found out that there's a plot against my life. If you know of one, don't tell me. That's something I'd rather stay ignorant of. Saul was well known, breathing out threatening and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. He was the guy that put his stamp of approval on the martyrdom of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. This guy hated the name of Christ. He hated those who propagated that name. He, he lived to destroy Christians and to destroy God's church. But in Acts chapter 9, Saul had an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. By the way, there's no one that God can't save. There's nobody beyond God's reach. Isn't that an amazing truth? Because if there's one person beyond God's reach, that, 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 that could also mean that maybe everybody's beyond his reach because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Saul had an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, and on that day he got saved. Uh, a few days later, Saul was baptized. And um, notice, if you would, please, um, verse number, oh, verse 19. When he had received meat, that is Saul, and he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples, which were Damascus. Then straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. So the persecutor is now a preacher, not a pastor. Uh, holds no position. He's just proclaiming everybody uh, to everybody that Jesus saves. He saved me. He can save you. But all that heard him were amazed. And said, is not this he that destroyed them which called on this name in Jerusalem and came hither for that intent that he might bring them bound unto the chief priest? They were all amazed. This guy used to try to kill us and now he's trying to tell everybody how to get saved. Saul increased the more in strength, confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ or truly Jesus is the Messiah. They tried to kill him in Damascus, so they, they sent him back to Jerusalem, verse 26. When Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed, or he attempted to join himself to the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. So here he comes walking into church one Sunday. Everybody in Jerusalem knows who he is. His name is notorious. He, you know... They probably had most wanted pictures around the church of Saul. They, they knew all about him. And here he comes into church. Now he's claiming, oh, I got saved. I got saved on the road to Damascus. And they just didn't believe him. They thought he's faking so he can come down and take uh, names and numbers and, you know, license plates off your chariot and all those kind of things, turn you into the authorities like they did in the Soviet Union and, and, and still do in communist-ruled countries today. Nobody believed this guy. Verse 27, but Barnabas took him, church member. Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles. 
declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way, that he had spoken to him, and how he preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. Nobody else wanted anything to do with Saul. Saul was an outcast on the day he walked into church, except for Barnabas. Barnabas saw potential in the man that nobody else wanted around. He saw that God had a plan, that God was good, that God could save even a guy with Saul's reputation. Took him under his wings, brought him to the leadership of the church and said, this guy truly got saved. I, I, I've seen the change in his life. I knew Saul before. I saw him just like you all did and I've, I've spent some time. I know that he's the real deal. Now, I want you to just think about this for a second. From a human standpoint, there had not been a Barnabas in that church to bring Saul under his wing. Do you realize that Saul could have easily just turned around and walked out and said, well, if that's church, I don't want anything to do with it. If that's what Christians are like, then I don't need that. Maybe I was right in the first place. Human nature can think that way. But because there was a Barnabas that took such a man as Saul of Tarsus under his wings, we're talking from a human standpoint. Do you realize if it wasn't for that, we wouldn't have the books of Romans through Hebrews in our Bible? Do you realize that there would have been no church at Ephesus to start all the other churches of Asia? Do you realize there would have been no church at Philippi? There would have been no church at Berea. There would have been no church in Athens. There would have been no church in Corinth. Do you understand that so much of church history would not even have happened? If there hadn't been a Barnabas that looked at somebody who was different, somebody who had a, ba a, a bad a background and past, someone who had a reputation and said, but you know, there's still a good God who can still change lives and nurtured him. Do you realize how the world was changed because of, of Saul who became Paul, but really because of Barnabas? Over, over 150 or so years ago, a farm boy by the name of Dwight left his farm in Massachusetts and moved to the big city of Boston to work in his uncle's shoe store. His uncle said, you can live with me, but the requirement is you have to go to church with me every Sunday. And so Dwight went to this church with his uncle. It was a congregational church and it was an upscale church. The white came straight from the farm. He didn't dress in the fine clothing that the men and the women and even the young people did in that church. It was a wealthy church. Uh, it was the kind of church where the town fathers and so forth went in. He didn't fit in. He stood out. Uh, he, didn't, he, he talked when he shouldn't have talked. He didn't know the songs that everybody else knew. But he came to church and they barely put up with him. As a 15-year-old boy... He got placed in a Sunday school class. His teacher's name was Ed Kimball. He didn't fit in with that class either. But Ed Kimball got a burden for the boys in his class, including Dwight. One day, Ed Kimball decided he needed to visit Dwight and make sure that Dwight was saved. So one day during working hours, he went to the shoe store where he knew he could find him. And he took Dwight aside and explained to him the gospel. And there in the shoe store, Dwight Moody bowed his head and received Jesus Christ as personal Savior. If you read the biography of Dwight L. Moody, 
when he got saved, buddy, he got saved. The Bible says if any man be in Christ, he is a what? He was a new creature, and Dwight Moody became that. Now, he didn't become polished and refined. He still had all the mannerisms of the farm boy and all of that. But, buddy, when he came to church, he got excited about church. He sang the songs to the top of his lungs, and he wasn't, from what I understand, a very great singer. Uh, but he didn't worry about it, and people turned around looking at him, uh, maybe a little bit off-key. He started bringing all of his friends, and none of them fit in that church at all. He was filling row after row after row. Eventually, God called Dwight to preach. Eventually, he went to Chicago, and, and he started the great uh, church there in Chicago and, and so forth. He ended up with a ministry that covered the then United States of America all the way over to England. It is said that in his lifetime, Dwight L. Moody led over a million people to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, remind you again, humanly speaking, there would have been no Dwight L. Moody had there not been an Ed Kimball. Think about that just for a moment. I wonder who it is that you are supposed to reach like that. I, I wonder who it is that you and, and, and I are supposed to invest our time in. We all want the overachiever. We all want the one that looks good, that's polished around the edges, that, that knows the theology. But, but I want you to understand, Saul was a persecuted, and, and D.L. Moody knew nothing about the Bible or the Christian life. There was no polish about him at all. Do you understand that, that everybody needs a Barnabas in their life? God said he was a good man. He was a good man because he sacrificed for other people. He was a good man because he saw potential where other people did not. Turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 11 again. He was a good man because he strengthened other believers in their walk with God. The Bible says in verse 23, who, when he came, when Barnabas came to Antioch and had seen the grace of God, was glad and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. When Barnabas showed up, the church got better. When Barnabas showed up, everybody else in church got stronger. When Barnabas was there, the youth group was in better shape. When Barnabas was there, the Sunday school class had a better spirit. When Barnabas was there, there was something just the singing was that much better, and everybody was more blessed by it. There was something about him that was so spirit-filled, so controlled by the Lord, that everybody he touched became stronger in the Lord. We not only all have a testimony, we all have an influence. Does your influence make people stronger in the Lord or weaker? You cause them to doubt God's word or to embrace God's word? Do you cause them to love their church family or to despise certain parts of the church family? Do you lead them to read their Bible more and to love to talk about it more, or does that not even enter into the conversation? Does your influence cause them to want to go off and pray and, and, and walk with God a little bit closer? Barnabas was that kind of a man. He was that kind of a man. He encouraged them to, to cleave to the Lord with all of their heart, and the Bible says that he was a good man.
We live in a world that, that, that uh, I, I think the number one export of our country these days is criticism. That's, that's what you do. That's how you sell newspapers. That, that's how you get ratings on your TV show. You find fault with somebody, and, and that's what it's all about. Do you realize that ought not be in the family of God? Question, how many here have a flaw? You know you do. You have a flaw. Okay? How many of you want your flaw talked about by the rest of the church? One who didn't understand the question. So we all have them, but we don't want, we don't want it to be talked about in the church, but why are we okay with talking about other people's flaws? Do you know Barnabas wouldn't have been caught up in that sinful trap? Because Barnabas didn't operate that way. He understood everybody had flaws, but he understood that there's a God who fixes flawed things. God told Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 18, he said, I want you to go down to the potter's house. And there I want you to watch as the potter is making a vessel on his wheel. So Jeremiah just walks in, maybe off the street. I don't know if he knew the guy or not. He said, hey, can I just sort of hang on? This is kind of fascinating. And he watched the guy, and he puts the lump of clay on there and wets his fingers, and he's doing all kinds of things. How many have ever watched a master potter at work? It's, it's, it's fascinating what they can do. We took pottery when I was in eighth grade art class. It was less than amazing what I could do with a lump of clay. The lump of clay was better off before I touched it than after. But boy, when a master potter gets on there, he knows just where to apply pressure, where to pull upwards. He knows everything to do. And, and what's just a gob of clay can turn into something absolutely amazing in the hands of a master. But as Jeremiah watched, the Bible said the clay was marred in the hands of the potter doesn't describe what happened to it, but there, it was marred. Maybe there was a little piece of stone inside the clay itself, and when the master's finger touched it, it just ripped through the rest of it. Whatever it was, it was marred in the hands of the potter. Jeremiah makes an interesting statement in Jeremiah chapter 18. What he doesn't say is that the potter threw the clay away. It's marred. I tried to make something nice out of it, and it's marred. Bam, and threw it against the wall. The Bible says he made it yet again another vessel as seemed good unto the potter. You understand that the potter saw it was marred and probably found out what it was. Maybe it was a piece of stone or something else in there. Perhaps you can see him removing that and taking the clay and putting it back and sort of starting all over again. But by the time he was done, he didn't have a marred vessel. He had a magnificent one. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Barnabas was the kind of guy that understood that biblical truth. And when he walked into church, he didn't see the flaws of people. He saw their potential. He encouraged them to walk with God. He wanted them to see that God has a plan for your life. I was a bus kid when I got saved. 
I didn't grow up in a church like this. I didn't grow up around the Bible. It was all sort of foreign to me. I, I guess I was a bit like D.L. Moody when he went to that church. Uh, I, I, I was straight off the farm, literally. That's where I was raised and walked into a city church. And, and I, I was very, very different. But I remember going to camp one time when I was a kid at Word of Life Camp in Scroon Lake, New York. And while we were there, Mrs. Arthurs, who was the youth pastor's wife, you've heard me talk about her son, Jeff, who became my Barnabas as a teenager. Mrs. Arthurs, uh, she knew a little bit that my dad wasn't saved and that my dad was fighting very strongly against the things we were learning at church and so forth. And one afternoon uh, during free time at camp, Mrs. Arthurs asked me if I would spend a little bit of time with her. Mrs. Arthurs had cancer. And within a year, Mrs. Arthurs would be in heaven from that day. And she was already having some trouble with balancing and walking, but she made a, a, a five or 600-mile trip on a bus with us and went to camp with us, and she spent just a little bit of time with me. I'd only been saved for a year or so, very rough around the edges. And as we sat there and we were talking with a smile on her face, and me understanding that this dear lady has cancer and she's not well at all. She had a smile on her face. And I remember grabbing my two hands in her two hands and just sort of shaking them as she smiled, this huge, radiant smile. And she said, Tom, God has a plan for your life. And God's plan is awesome. And I can't wait to see what it is. She didn't live long enough to see me get called to preach, to hear my first sermon, to see anything else that followed. The Bible talks about a cloud of witnesses in Hebrews chapter uh, number 12, and sometimes I wonder if that means people in heaven get a glimpse of what's going on down here. I don't know if that happens or not. But I know that one day I'm going to get to heaven and I'm going to get to see Mrs. Arthurs again. By the way, her first name is Joy. Boy, did she live it. I'm going to get to see Joy Arthurs again. And I'm going to get to sit down and say, you were so right. By the way, that was the first time in my life that anybody ever told me God had a plan for me. I didn't understand it. I didn't comprehend it. But it started something in my heart that still goes on to this day. Barnabas was that kind of a man. He strengthened other people. Acts chapter 11, one more time, please. He was a good man, full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, and much people was added unto the Lord. Barnabas was a soul winner. Barnabas brought people to the Lord. That's why in Acts 13, when God wanted to send out the first missionaries, he picked out Barnabas and Paul. And sent them off, and we read about their exploits in the next several chapters. And all the people that got saved and the churches that got started, one of their converts was a young man named Timothy, who would become very important, very famous in Bible history and so forth. Barnabas was a man that just told everybody he could about Christ. He was a soul winner. Every one of us ought to be able to look around in our church and see somebody that's there because we brought them. They see that somebody that's saved because we told them, because we are all commanded to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. 
think on this for a moment. Could you imagine if in this year, we've got a little over six months left in the year, in the year 2023, in the next six months, if every one of us that are in this room right now won one person to Christ in the next six months, won one person to Christ, brought him to church, you realize we wouldn't have room. I mean, one. I'm not saying go out and win 10,000 to Christ, though somebody might be able to do that. I'm saying just, just one. Pass out a gospel tract. Invite somebody to come to church to hear the gospel. Uh, share the gospel door to door to a coworker, to a neighbor, to a family member. If everybody just, every one of us won one person to Christ, can you imagine what that would be like around here? Can you imagine how often that we'd be refilling the baptistry because it'd be running dry from all the people getting baptized and carrying water out with them? Can you imagine what God could do? Barnabas was that guy. He started out in a soul-winning church, went to Antioch, and after he got there, uh, we, we already knew a lot of people had gotten saved, but even more people got saved because of him. Barnabas was a good man. Barnabas was a good man. I've preached on him before. I will probably preach on him again. He inspires me. He challenges me. I'm going to be honest, he convicts me to, to take a step back and ask, does the Lord consider Tom Bish a good man? I want you to understand, it's God's assessment of him here. It wasn't Barnabas' assessment or any other human being. It's the word of God saying he was a good man. Same with Joseph of Arimathea. Is that what God says? Is that what God says? Are we such a person whose steps are ordered by the Lord? The Bible says he was full of the Holy Ghost and of faith. That means he just let God control everything about him. Two things and I'm done. Number one, everybody has a Barnabas in their life somewhere. Somebody led you to Christ. Somebody brought you to church. Somebody at church befriended you, discipled you, took you under their wing. Somebody helped you along the way. Everybody has a Barnabas. How many, just right now, you, you're thinking of a person right now and you know that was my Barnabas, that person. How many are thinking of somebody right now? Boy, we ought to thank God for that person. If they're still alive and not in heaven yet, if you can get in touch with them, you ought to let them know, hey, thanks for being my Barnabas. We ought to thank God for that. Number two, everybody needs a Barnabas. How many could use somebody like that in your life? Anybody? I'm a pastor now. God's given me a whole bunch of Barnabases to help me along the way. Boy, I'm, I'm thankful for that. I get some texts from Paul Chapman, who pastors in Rhode Island, whose wife has had, had a debilitating disease for going on a decade now. And, and he'll reach out to me sometimes every single week. How you doing? I'm praying for you. Is there anything I can do for you? I've got several pastors that do that. And I'm going to be honest with you. They help keep me going. So who's helping to keep you going? But more importantly, who are you helping to keep going? There ought to be somebody. If not, 
there ought to be a prayer that goes out that said, Lord, would you help me be a good man? Lord, would you help me be a good teenager? Lord, would you help me be a good lady like Barnabas was? Lord, I want to have a reputation in my church like Barnabas had. Lord, I want to encourage people. I want to be the one winning people to Christ. I want to be the one making a difference. Lord, would you help me be a Barnabas? Can we bow our heads for prayer this morning?